in these pieces of music you just get one note at a time more or less just the melody sometimes you get two notes played at once very occasionally three notes but the music's very stark very sparse and you have to or the the, the harmony of the music is implied not actually played so I think it's rather like this with the Suttanipata. It's very simple, very stark, very ascetic. And the later Buddhist teachings are implied. And we bring those teachings to the text. They're not actually stated. So let's plunge in. I'm going to begin by reading you the first of these suttas which is only actually six verses long and it's called the Karma Sutta and I always smile when I come across this sutta <laughs> because when I was young, I can say that now, when I was young, uh, at school I remember there was talk about um, a text from India called the Karma Sutra which is the Sanskrit equivalent of the Karma Sutta uh, in name that is which was it seemed I never saw the book but it seems it was some kind of exotic sex manual with uh, different ways of different positions of having sex in but this sutta is nothing like that in fact it's <laughs> quite quite different so I'm going to read you what I've done is it's quite hard to get good translations in a sense when you read these old, these ancient buddhist texts you're at the mercy of the translator's understanding of the dharma so for some of these texts what i've done is i've amalgamated two translations to get the translation that i like so this is a translation of k.r norman and tanisaro if one longing for sensual pleasure achieves it yes he's enraptured at heart the mortal gets what he wants but if for that person longing desiring the pleasures diminish he grieves as though pierced by a barb Whoever avoids sensual pleasures, as if avoiding the head of a snake with his foot, mindful, goes beyond this attachment to the world. A man who is greedy for fields, land, gold, cattle, horses, servants, employees, women, relatives, many sensual pleasures, is overpowered with weakness and crushed by dangers. Then misery enters into him like water into a broken boat. So one, always mindful, should avoid sensual pleasures letting them go he'd cross over the flood like one who 
having bailed out the boat, has reached the far shore. Very simple message. If you try to get sensual pleasures and you're successful, you'll have a great time. No, no question. He's enraptured at heart. Piti mano. Mano is mind or heart. Piti is the same word that we use when we talk about the first jhana. It's one of the characteristics of the first jhana. Sorry. Um, Piti is rapture. So if you get what you want, you're enraptured at heart. I like the last line of that verse though. The mortal gets what he wants. Just to remind you that even when you get what you want, you're going to die. Yeah. That's the message of this sutta. It's very, very simple. What's powerful about the sutta, I think, is not so much what the Buddha says as the way he says it. The metaphors are so strong. If for that person longing, desiring, the pleasures diminish, he grieves as though pierced by a barb. Barb is the translation of sala, which is an arrow or a dart or a barb. So you get what you want, you're enraptured at heart, and then you start to lose it, and then comes the barb, the pain. I'm going to say more about this wonderful image of the barb later on. Then the next metaphor, whoever avoids sensual pleasures as if avoiding the head of a snake with his foot. Very strong image, probably doesn't mean an awful lot to us, we have to use our imagination because we don't usually walk around bare feet in places where there are snakes. But of course in India, everyone would know. Everyone would be walking around barefoot in the grass where there are deadly snakes. Everyone would know that you have to avoid standing on a snake in your bare feet. I think if the Buddha were alive today, he wouldn't use that image. He would say something like, whoever avoids sensual pleasures as if crossing the road on a main street in a city, you've got to be that careful of sensual pleasures. You get hit by a sensual pleasure <laughs> and you are done for. <laughs> the next one, the next image, a man who is greedy for fields, etc., etc., is overpowered with weakness and crushed by dangers. Then misery enters into him like water into a broken boat. What an image. You're in a boat on the water, on the flood presumably, and it's broken, and the water's pouring in, and you're terrified. That's the image that the Buddha used. I just think that image of a broken boat with the water just pouring in is such a strong image. 
and the boat is on the flood. So one, always mindful, should avoid sensual desires, letting them go, letting them go. He'd cross over the flood like one who, having bailed out that boat, has reached the far shore. Now, usually when I've come across this idea of reaching the far shore, it's been a river, get from one shore to the other. But a river kind of behaves itself, doesn't it? It's in its boundaries, and you live there, and the river's over there. But here, the Buddha's talking about a flood. And, of course, this would have meant so much to the ancient Indians. In the rainy season, you get floods. Imagine if we were flooded now. Imagine the chaos if we had this amazing thunderstorm and the whole of Tawaloka was flooded out. Can you imagine the chaos, the damage? All our tents would be washed away, our cars would be ruined, our possessions such as we've got here would, would be ruined, and it would be utter chaos. Perhaps some of us would die. That's the kind of image the Buddha is using here. So when you're on the boat and the water's coming through, you are in big trouble. That's the first. The second sutta I want to talk about is the 15th. There are 16 suttas altogether. It's called the Atta Danda Sutta. Danda is stick. Atta is to grab hold of or to seize. So it's the seizing the stick sutta. And uh, to seize the stick is the ancient Buddhist way of talking about violence. It's a very concrete image. When you're violent, you seize a stick. So the Atta Danda Sutta. When I first came across this sutta, many, many years ago in Sadatitta's translation. Yeah, I was so, I was going to say struck. Um, I was, it had such a strong effect on me. You know, sometimes when you're reading these ancient texts, it feels like the Buddha's talking through a kind of a veil. You can't quite get at the Buddha as a human being. The kind of mythological idea of the Buddha as some kind of amazing being who never did anything wrong. Uh, for someone like me, that's quite hard to relate to. But when I came across this sutta many years ago, it was as if suddenly a door opened and there was the Buddha, the real human being, the Buddha. I'm not going to read you the whole sutta because it's a fairly long one. Just the first five verses. This is actually a translation by Andrew Ol Olensky. Never heard of him before, but I found it on the net. And I've changed it just very slightly. Fear is born from arming oneself. Just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear 
that caused me to tremble all over. Seeing creatures flopping around like fish in water too shallow, so hostile to one another. Seeing this, I became afraid. This world completely lacks essence. It trembles in all directions. I longed to find myself a place unscathed, but I could not see it. Seeing people locked in conflict, I became completely distraught. But then I disturbed I, I discerned here a barb, hard to see, lodged deep in the heart. It's only when pierced by this barb that one runs in all directions. So that, if that barb is taken out, one does not run, one does not sink. I really felt that I'd met the Buddha when I read that. Um, he's talking about his own fear and his trembling and being distraught. This is presumably before his enlightenment. You really get the feet. Sometimes when you read about the Buddha's life story or hear about the Buddha's life story, it's almost like this amazing guy who just thought, oh, I can see suffering everywhere, well, I think I'll become enlightened and save all beings. But here you get a real feeling for his own suffering, his own fear. And the first line is very interesting. Fear is born from arming oneself. This reminds me of another early text, Anudana, where the Buddha says something like, um, Open up the thatch, and thus it will not rain through. So if you want to protect yourself, open up. Disarm. Fear is born from arming oneself. So this is kind of counter-intuitive, I think. It goes against what most people think. That if you want to be free from fear, you have to arm yourself. You have to protect yourself. But here the Buddha is saying, that's what causes fear. If you take up the stick, then you will feel fear. Just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that caused me to tremble all over. Throughout the Sutta Nipata, you get this term tremble again and again, and it signifies fear. It also signifies agitation. It's the opposite of peace and purity. It's that feeling of agitation. Seeing creatures flopping around like fish in water, too shallow, so hostile to one another. So here's another amazing image which would have meant so much to people in India at that time. This time, the hot season. Water is evaporating. Fish that were in a lake are now in a small pond, and there are too many of them for the amount of water there. So they're all fighting for scant resources. 
So this is the image the Buddha gives us for humanity. We're like fish in too little water, hostile to one another. This world completely lacks essence. It trembles in all directions. So not only was the Buddha trembling, but he saw that everyone was trembling in some way. Seeing people locked in conflict, I became completely distraught. But then I discerned here a barb hard to see, lodged deep in the heart. It's only when pierced by this barb that one runs in all directions. This to me is just a wonderful image of being pierced deep in the heart by a barb. What is the barb? The barb is self. Usually we don't feel the barb as painful. It's lodged in the heart, deep in the heart, but we don't usually feel it as painful. It's only when we're under stress, it's only when we're threatened in some way that we feel the pain of the barb and it causes us to run in all directions. It causes us to fight with one another. Each one of us has a barb, a dart, pierced deep in the heart. And the only way that you can get that barb out is by becoming selfless, by disarming oneself. Wonderful, uh, very, very simple teachings. Interesting thing here is the Buddha doesn't tell you how to get rid of the barb, how to take the barb out. He just said, get rid of it. It's true, I think, throughout the whole of the Sutta there are these very strong wisdom teachings. And then the Buddha doesn't tell you how to go about realising them. Perhaps the Buddha was there, he had a tremendous influence, and perhaps people just managed to get rid of the barb there and then. I don't know. But it, it's just very strong wisdom teachings that you can reflect on again and again. Another strong theme in the Suttanipata is renunciation and sp specifically renouncing home. I'll read you a couple of sections from the number six, Sutta number six, Jara Sutta. Jara means old age. People grieve for their cherished things, for no possessions are permanent. Seeing that this separation is inevitable, one should not live the household life. Those who are greedy for cherished things do not abandon grief, lamentation and avarice. Therefore the sages, seeing security, abandoning possessions, have wandered forth. Seeing security. Security is a translation of kemar, which means full of peace, safe, tranquil, calm. <coughs> and then from number nine, the Magandhya Sutta. Having abandoned home, living free from society, the sage 
in villages creates no intimacies. So a very strong emphasis over and over again in these suttas. Renounce. Renounce pleasures, renounce the world, renounce home. Now, the Buddha didn't teach these teachings to make us unhappy. He didn't teach these teachings to give us a hard time. He taught them for us to help us take out the barb of suffering. He wants us to be happy. So I think we need to take these teachings very seriously. Some books on Buddhism these days, especially perhaps those coming from America, are very strong on meditation, very good meditation books. But they're very weak on changing one's life. They're very weak on renunciation, talking generally here. But when you read the Buddha in the ancient texts, this is one of the strongest things that he says. Leave, let go, abandon. That's the way to happiness. However, there is another way of understanding this idea of leaving home. This section that I just read you from the Magandhya Sutta was quoted to Maha Kachina. Having abandoned home, living free from society, the sage in villages creates no intimacies. So a householder asked Maha Kachina what this means. Maha Kachina answered in a very interesting way. He said, the property of form, householder, is the home of consciousness. When consciousness is in bondage through passion to the property of form, it is said to be living at home. And he goes on to say, the property of feeling, householder, is the home of consciousness. The property of perception the property of intentions. Those of you who know your Buddhist lists will know that the Buddha's going, or Mahakachana is going through the five skandhas. Skandhas. So, the five skandhas make skandhas make up the self. When you're in bondage to the self, you live at home. So, Mahakachana has, as it were, psychologized this teaching, and then. He goes on to say, and how does one live in society? One who is in bondage to the distraction of the society of bodily sensations is said to be living in society. Same with the other five sense contacts, the sensation of sight, hearing and so on. Connected with this idea of homelessness is the Pali term viveka. Viveka has become currently my favourite Pali term. I go through phases. But viveka, I think, is quite a wonderful term, very rich. It means detachment. It means loneliness, separation, seclusion. But it also means singleness of heart, discrimination of thought. Very interesting word. This is all from the Pali English Dictionary. I have to say I take issue with the Pali English Dictionary on one thing where it says viveka means loneliness. Perhaps it does, but I've never come across 
a text where viveka meant loneliness in a negative sense. I think it more means aloneness, solitude. So viveka means physical seclusion or detachment, but it also means mental seclusion or detachment. In fact, there is a later list of the three kinds of viveka. Uh, Kaya viveka, which is physical seclusion. Uh, Chitta viveka, which is seclusion of the mind, mental seclusion. And Upadi viveka, which is ethical seclusion. Very, very interesting. Here's a line from one of the suttas from the Suttinipata, from the Guhataka Sutta translators. A person sun sunk in confusion is far from seclusion. A person sunk in confusion is far from seclusion. Then from number seven, somebody says to the Buddha, having heard your teaching, will train in seclusion. So there's a training in seclusion. Then from number 10, the Purabheda Sutta. Free from attachment with regard to the future, not sorrowing over the past, he sees seclusion in the midst of sensory contacts. This is fascinating. He sees seclusion, viveka, in the midst of sensory contacts. Later in the tradition, you get the idea of the 12 nidanas going round the wheel of life. And three of them are contact, sense contact, that is, including the mind, leads to feeling. Feeling leads to craving. So you could say here, when the Buddha says he sees seclusion in the midst of sensory contacts, viveka is the gap between feeling and craving. You could say viveka is that gap, that open space, that awareness, that discrimination of thought perhaps, that non-distractedness, that singleness of heart. Kierkegaard wrote a very famous book called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Purity of Heart is to Want One Thing. Non-distractedness. I've been very inspired these last couple of weeks while I've been thinking about the Suttanipata with this idea of Viveka, bringing <coughs> Viveka into everything I do when I'm in contact with people bringing this sense of seclusion, this sense of space, this sense of openness within my sense contacts. I would say that Viveka is the closest we get to in the Pali Canon to what Sangharachita Bhanti is trying to get at when he talks about individuality or the true individual. For many, many years I've been thinking, well, where do you get this teaching of the true individual in the Pali Canon? 
Well, in a sense, you don't get it, actually. But this is about the closest I've come to seclusion, singleness of heart, discrimination of thought. In fact, Viveka is enlightenment. Here's another line from number 14, the Tuvataka Sutta. I ask the kinsman of the sun, the Buddha, the great seer, about seclusion and the state of peace. Now I said earlier that the state of peace was enlightenment, but here so is seclusion. Seclusion is in fact enlightenment. And remember, the first jhana is said to be born of seclusion. Now, I always used to think that meant that you had to go away and be on, on your own in a secluded place. And it does mean that sometimes. But even more importantly is the state of mind of seclusion, the singleness of heart, which allows the first jhana to arise. Another important strand in the, in the fourth chapter is no views. The wise man has no views. Here's a quote. They do not form views. They do not prefer. And connected to having those views is having no disputes. A sage would not engage in disputes with the people. Now, this is interesting. That line I've just read you comes immediately after, what, after the verse I read earlier. I'll read the whole thing. Having abandoned home, living free from society, the sage in villages creates no intimacies. And then comes, a sage would not engage in disputes with the people. So I think the idea here is that views are a form of home. And in the Sutta you need to leave the home of your views, the safety of your own views. Very similar, I think, to a line from the Ratnaguna Samjayagata, one of the first of the Perfection of Wisdom texts, where the Buddha says, without a home they wander, dharmas never hold them nor do they grasp at them. Also connected to no views, and therefore no disputes, is this idea of neither being superior, nor inferior, nor even equal to other people. The idea here is that when you have views, you then engage in disputes with other people. You try to show that your view is right and the other person's view is wrong. And if you win the argument, you feel elated, you feel superior. If you lose the argument, you feel depressed, despondent, you feel inferior. So if you have no views, you don't engage in disputes, you don't even think in those terms of superior, inferior, or even equal. You do not even compare yourself with others. There's no comparisons. So we usually engage, I think it's true to say, in disputes from egoistic motives. Now, the, there are about, I think, five suttas, all on this idea of not having views, 
and not engaging in disputes. And the teaching, the teachings seem to be particularly for bhikkhus. Uh, so the idea, we're back to this atadanda again, taking up the stick. A bhikkhu has given up, given up physical violence, but they may still engage in violence, as it were, through the mind and the speech. So you even have to give up that form of violence too. Defeating others in argument, becoming defeated in argument, you have to let that go. A few weeks ago, Sangu Akshita was in Manchester and he did a question and answer session for order members. And uh, as I'd been looking at these suttas, I asked him about these suttas where the Buddha talks about no views. And I said, do you think that the fourth and fifth chapters of the Sutta Nipata, well, they're obviously different from many other aspects of the Pali Canon where the Buddha talks about the importance of right views. Usually in the Pali Canon, the Buddha talks about right views, which then lead to the state of having no views. And Bhante said that he thought it was very, very difficult, if not impossible, to move from wrong views to no views. Yeah. So you've got on the one side, you've got right, wrong views. On the other side, you've got right views. And they're in opposition to each other. But to move to the middle way, which is above, to no views, you have to go from wrong views firstly to right views, and that gives you access to wrong views. It's as if right views are on the side of no view. In other words, they're freeing. They free you up to a position whereby you have no views. Wrong views tend to entrap you. Okay, I'm going to read one last section to you. I'm going to read you parts of number 10, the Purabeda Sutta. And here is another important strand in the fourth chapter. Here, somebody asks the Buddha, seeing how, behaving how, is one said to be at peace? In other words, what's it like to be enlightened? And the Buddha gives a fairly long reply. And in a way, uh, Sadatissa um, entitles this sutta, Qualities of the Muni, Qualities of the Sage. And I think he's quite right. This is a kind of description of what it's like to be enlightened. It's, a, it's an early Buddhanu Sati. It's an early recollection of the Buddha, the Buddha's qualities. And if you recollect these qualities, if you recite them to yourself over and over again and open yourself up to them, you become like that. You take on those qualities. You become more and more like the Muni, the Buddha. So, seeing how, behaving how, is one said to be at peace. Without anger, without trembling, not boasting, without remorse, speaking intelligently, unperturbed. He, indeed, is a sage of restrained speech. Free from attachment with regard to the future, not grieving over the past, he sees seclusion 
in the midst of sensory contacts. He can't be led in terms of views. Withdrawn, not deceitful, not covetous, not avaricious, not insolent, not offensive. He does not engage in divisive speech. Not intoxicated with enticements, nor given to pride. He's gentle, quick-witted. He neither attaches himself nor makes an effort to detach himself. So here's a line which is very similar to some of the perfection of wisdom teachings. He neither attaches himself nor makes an effort to detach himself. Another translator translates this line as he is not impassioned or dispassioned. This is very interesting because usually the path moves from knowledge and vision of things as they really are to dispassion. But here he is not impassioned or dispassioned. Reminds me of another line from the Sudatika Sutta. He is not impassioned by passion. He is not attached to the passionless. I'll come back to this. Not in hopes of material gain does he take on the training. When, without material gain, he isn't upset. He is not opposed to craving, nor is he greedy for flavours. Not opposed to craving. Well, what was the Kama Sutta all about then? He is not opposed to craving, nor is he greedy for flavours. What does this mean? Come back to that. Equanimous, always mindful. He doesn't think of himself as equal, superior, or inferior in the world. No swellings of pride are his. He for whom there is no state of dependence, when, on knowing the Dharma, he's independent. In whom no craving is found for becoming or not becoming. Indifferent to sensual pleasures. Actually, the word indifferent is a translation of uh, upeka. So you could just as easily say equanimous towards sensual pleasures. He is said to be at peace with nothing at all to tie him down. One who's crossed over attachment. He has no children, no cattle, no fields, no land. In him, you can't pin down what's embraced or rejected. Very interesting, is it? Neither embraced nor rejected. Another possible translation of that line is, in him, you can't pin down what's self or opposed to self. So far then we've had, he neither attaches himself nor makes an effort to detach himself, 
or the other translation, he is not impassioned nor dispassioned. We've had, he is not opposed to craving, nor is he greedy for flavours. In him, you can't pin down what's embraced or rejected, or what's self or opposed to self. So these teachings, although many of them are very down-to-earth, dualistic teachings, do this, don't do that, don't crave, don't get attached, etc., etc. Some of them are very subtle. Some of them, you could say, are non-dual teachings. Usually we think of right view and wrong view. You have to go from wrong view to right view. Here, no views. Attachment, detachment are opposites. Throughout most of this text, they are seen as opposites. Attachment, you, you get rid of, and you go to detachment. But here in this text, the Buddha is neither attached nor makes an effort to detach himself. Same with passion, dispassion. Same with craving, not craving, etc. And it reminds me of another line in the Ratnaguna Samjayagata. Change and no change. Suffering and happiness. The self and not self. The lovely and repulsive. Just one suchness. In this emptiness, they are. But I think an easy way of understanding this is that you've got opposites. You've got wrong views, right views, craving, no craving, etc. And the Buddhist way is to go from one opposite to the other. From craving to a state of no craving. Before you reach the state of Buddhahood where craving is no longer a problem. Think of chocolate. Let's say you're one of those kinds of people, and there are those kinds of people in the world who has to have chocolate every day. I met someone just not too long ago where she said, I have to have some chocolate every day. Just imagine you're like that. And you want to free yourself of the craving of chocolate. So you stop eating chocolate. Well, for a few weeks and months, you're going to be thinking about chocolate. You're going to be opposed to chocolate. You're going to be in a kind of a battle with chocolate. But after a while, if you persist, your cravings for chocolate die away. And then you become someone who is not opposed to chocolate. Someone who neither likes chocolate nor dislikes chocolate. So I think that's the way we, we can understand these texts. The Buddha wants us to be happy. And the way to do that is to be, go from craving to non-craving. And at first there's a battle. It's difficult, it's hard, but eventually we get to this state of peace, this state of kemar, which is safety and peace. So I'm just going to read you the last few lines of the text, then I'm going to finish. And uh, I think I said already that I don't like applause, didn't I? Did I say that at the beginning? Okay, so we'll just finish with the Buddha's words. That on account of which the common people and ascetics and Brahmins might accuse him is not preferred by him. Therefore, he is not agitated 
in the midst of their accusations. For whom nothing in the world is his own, who doesn't grieve over what is not, who doesn't enter into things, he is said to be at peace. 